Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jennifer Lee, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital, joined by my co-host, Dr. Peter Liu. Hey, Jen. Hey, what's up? Not much. The weekend before this comes out is yep. a first year fellow conference. It is. Yeah, Jason's there. Jason's there. I hope everyone's having a really good time. Orlando's like 80 degrees Fahrenheit. I was about to go look because it's been cold down there recently. Now, in Florida? Yeah. Oh, it's Since 80. Be, You're yes, right. It's 80. I know. I actually, but on Saturday, the high is 69. Oh, no. Poor. I don't know how they're going to survive. Like, <laughs> they'll put on a long sleeve shirt or something. Wait, I'm really going to look up Edmonton also. Edmonton <laughs> today, the high is 33. Ooh, okay. Sunday in two wave. weeks, the high is four and the low is negative 11. So oh, man. It's pretty cold up there. I think if you like live like that, you Get just got to be it. a little bit tougher. <laughs> no? That's why Jason's so tough, obviously. Yeah. Hey, you're going to Florida though, right? For the planning committee. I am. I am. And yeah, so usually it's with the fellow conference, but it's not this year. I've only been to one last mm. year, but yeah, I think it's usually combined. My first year fellows conference, a Saturday night is like the party thing with the DJ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Miguel Saps, Dr. Saps was like, Hey Peter, I'm here. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> and uh, he's like, I'm here for planning. That was like 10 oh. years ago. So it must be like that all the time. So we I can guess. just start getting excited about NASPA in 2023. Yes. San Diego. San. Oh my gosh. And like, I'm pretty sure this hotel is right on the water. Yeah. Yeah. This is the one it right is. next to the convention center. Yeah. I've been oh, there it's before. So nice. I've stayed there. Yeah. So it's nice. I have not stayed there. We've stayed in crappy Airbnbs. <laughs> Keep yeah. anything away for us about uh, what Naspian's going to be like. No, I know nothing, but yeah. I know that it'll be awesome. Ah, it's exciting. Yeah. But Give yeah, us an update so, next episode. Okay. Okay. As much as I can reveal, <laughs> but it's intense. I don't know if I mentioned it last year, but this planning meeting is no joke. Right. Isn't it? A, you have to make sure that you have adequate representation, which I love yeah. Spigen does. Yeah. I was super impressed. Like it's just, it's like exhausting, but there's yeah. like literally tallies of region, gender, underrepresented minority, different topics, level of experience. It's like really They take it really seriously, which I feel like if you don't count, you won't really guarantee that there's going to be good representation. Yeah, that makes sense. Our biases will creep in if we don't do that. But yeah, I'm excited. It'll be fun. It's like Saturday night. I'll get to hang out with Jason. Oh, fun. Take a picture. It's pretty great. But (laughs) so let's move on to the topic. All right. Yes. Yes. Today is a really great episode. We are talking about biologics. Beyond anti-TNFs. Biologics and small molecules. Oh, yeah, and small molecules. Yes, yes, You're yes. right. And we had Dr. Joel Rush in Columbus, Ohio with Just us. Just to record with us. It's crazy. He came that was like to on give the side. a lecture. Yeah, he had to give a talk. But, <laughs> but he did record with us in the office, yeah. which was really great. You know, what better guest than Dr. Rush to speak on this topic? So as everyone I'm sure knows, he's a internationally renowned expert on IBD. He has just recently become the chief of pediatric GI at Cohen Children's Medical Center in Northwell Health uh, in New York. He's also held several leadership positions, both mm-hmm. in NASPGAN and in other IBD organizations, including being currently a national board member for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Yeah. Can't wait to share this episode. I learned so much. Yeah. Like we threw so many challenging scenarios at him. Yeah. Never blinked. No, he just like answered them off the fly. He yeah. didn't even have to think about it. Off the cuff. Off the cuff. Off on the fly. Whatever. So another announcement though is our next Twitter chat, the first of 2023, mm-hmm. is actually going to follow this episode 
on Thursday, February 2nd. So 7 p.m. with some of our more active Twitter influencers in the pediatric GI world. Names to be announced at a Mm. later date. Yeah. So do not miss that. That's going to be awesome. I think this chat will be a little bit different because it's all patient cases. Yeah. Clinical scenarios. And then just being like, what would you do do? in this situation? And there's actually an IBD conference going on right now in Colorado. So a lot of people will come back with a bunch of hot new things to talk about. Well, on to the show. Welcome to Bell Sounds, Dr. Raj. So excited to have you here today in person in Columbus, Ohio. Welcome to Columbus. Thank you. It's great to be here. Dr. Raj, we're going to start with perhaps the most challenging question. For our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Whoa, I haven't done that since medical school interview. Let's see. (laughs) In one sentence, I'm a lifelong Met fan. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Why would that describe me in one sentence that I'm a lifelong fan of the New York Mets? So I guess it encapsulates a lot of things. Obviously, I don't prize victory. <laughs> I think I, I think that's first and foremost. What I really value isn't necessarily the trophies or the, or the spotlight, but stubborn passion. Being a Met fan, you have to be stubbornly passionate and know what you want out of life. And rooting for that team has been ever since my brother poisoned me in 1962. That's what I've been doing, you know. Wait, what? <laughs> Ever since what? So you always idolize your older siblings. Sure, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. For whatever reason, my brother, who was six at the time, loved this team called the New York Mets. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. two, and so I had to do the same thing. There you <laughs> go. And, uh, just never gave up. Yeah. From two years old. <clears throat> yeah. Lifelong, yeah. Lifelong, just about Oh, lifelong. man. Yeah. I do think that well. the teams you choose to be a fan of do reflect some of your character and personality, for sure. Mm. And yeah. color choice. Yeah, I yeah, love orange that's and blue. True. Yeah. Do you I'm, like purple uh, and yellow? Purple and white. White. I'm the one Northwestern University football fan in Columbus, uh. and really in all of Ohio. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. I mean, I have I cheer for the Buckeyes as well, but when they play each other, I'm the only person in the stadium with a purple shirt. Um, doesn't go over super well, but we never yeah. win, so it's. You can't do that in New York. You can't wear the <laughs> right. team's colors. There's violence. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> It's much I think more civil here in Columbus. It's more like, uh, wow, that there's no threat posed by this guy. It'd be different um, if you were wearing, wearing blue and yellow. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. But, uh, but anyways, okay. So the next question we have, yes. Um, in terms of like maybe some of the media you've been consuming recently, any books, TV shows, movies, podcasts that you'd recommend to our audience? Oh, I'm going to be old and boring and pick a book. Okay. Um, so um, I'm in the middle of Empire of Pain, which is the story of the Sackler family. Um, oh, so yeah. for anyone in medicine, I commend the book. So it's a reporter's view. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully it's accurate. Um, but as far as how farmer interacted with us in the past, and hopefully we've gotten much better about it and, and a lot of that history, but also a lot of insight into maybe goals gone wrong. I, I would commend it to anyone, especially in training. Yeah, um, But for all of us, I think it's a great book and it's a pretty quick read. It looks thick. Don't let it fool you. It's a quick read. So uh, Fond is really big. Of pain. Yeah. Empire of Pain. Do you think it's mostly, it makes you kind of rethink your interactions with pharma, like the way that we interact on a day to day, or is it just like. Is it about opioids? Is it the opioids? Yeah. So it yeah. actually, his, his history actually even started before that. He was a psychiatrist and oh, um, wow. really helped develop some of the early benzodiazepines and mm-hmm. how he marketed them. And so what became with Oxycontin was really just a long history of the same sort of thing. Hmm. But also for someone of my age who remembers getting these color glossies in the oh, uh, yeah. mail and, and 
the former practices have so improved since those mm. days. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you don't know history and you don't know the roots of something, yeah. it's a whole different view. So it's it's a very worthwhile read. Yeah, okay. Mm. They used to give out a lot mm. more than pens and oh, yeah. things like that's that. What we, that's what I hear. <laughs> I don't know. Vacations and... Uh, and, oh. and, and, mm. and you always have to judge in the era. So <laughs> yeah, sure. You read oh, yeah. Any history. So the era was different. Oh, yeah. Our actions were different. Our whole thought process was different. But you can learn a lot from that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to add that Go to the list. To days. Yeah. So we did Google you a little bit uh -oh. before you came. <laughs> <laughs> and we actually found you wrote your first paper in 1991. And it was on endoscopic color Doppler assessment of portal and hepatic vasculature after a liver transplantation. So not even wow. an IBD topic. And Remicade wasn't even approved for use in pediatric <laughs> Crohn's. So since we're going to be talking about inflammatory bowel disease today, so can you tell us how you went from Doppler and liver transplantation interest into IBD? Yeah, so history. So our field was very different when I trained. So I was a couple weeks into the first year of my fellowship at Mount Sinai in New York, and they transplanted the first child. And so my mentor and dear friend, Neil Oleiko said, you know, no one here is really a liver person. That's a good niche for you. Why don't you go around with the liver guys? You'll become the liver person. And so wow. that's how you became a hepatologist. <laughs> so the first era of my career was uh, liver transplantation and pediatric wow. hepatology. Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And one of the problems that we had post-transplant, I mean, it's still a problem, but it was much more so till surgical techniques were, were optimized, were vascular complications, mm -hmm. uh, both portal, but even more so the hepatic artery. And it's it's sort of learning opportunities where they present. So around the same time, transesophageal echocardiogram was becoming mm -hmm. vogue. And so the pediatric cardiologist said, you know, why don't you go mm -hmm. hang out with the endoscopist and learn how to pass this probe? So I was the guy training the cardiology fellows how to pass a probe in wow. the esophagus. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that, I said, you know, you guys get to see all these blood vessels. Do you think you could see the liver Blood vessels, like, I don't know, why don't we try? So we did, and it worked, and so we published it. So just sort of finding opportunity, being a little innovative, and taking the different skills that were in front of you. So I was a liver transplanter while I was at Sinai and a hepatologist till I moved over to Morristown, New Jersey in 94. Hmm. Yeah. And then how did you transition over to IBD? How did I go hollow? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, to the hollow organs. Well, if, if you grow up at Mount Sinai, and a lot of my mentors were IBDologists, mm. and that was really, a, and still is, one of the meccas in the world for inflammatory bowel disease, it became very clear at some point in my career, either because both fields were moving, mm -hmm. gone for the patients, and either I stuck with liver or I went IBD. And for a lot of reasons, uh, IBD just had more appeal to me at a personal level. And around that time, this uh, small hospital in New Jersey was looking to start a GI program. I said, well, I could be the first GI IBDologist pediatric in New Jersey. Let's go for it. It was, it was both to start a program and also to delve deeper into IBD. Yeah. Pediatric mm. IBD. The rest is history. The rest there is history. Yeah. So do you miss liver stuff at all now or no? 
<laughs> yeah, so no, I, no I, I still, you know, it's <clears throat> your first love. You never forget your first love. No, I, I find liver fascinating. It's sure, so much sure. better for the patients now. Everything was neonatal hepatitis or non-A, non-B hepatitis. Mm. And when mm. we think about, now we have all these diagnoses. I, I learned from your fellows, you know, 10 types of PFIC. I mean, it was all Byler's disease. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's, I, that's, yeah, mm. it was, oh. it's like crazy. So <laughs> learning all these different diseases, moving along, I, it's fascinating. And, you know, I am about to make a move to a new institution yeah. to Northwell Health and Cohen Children's mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. work with a new team. And I feel so fortunate that I've had 28 years in one place with an absolutely amazing team. And the new place has a big hepatology presence as well. So I, I, I suspect I'm going to be learning liver again. Yeah, yeah. right, Ooh, right, right. Wow. Escape. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Congrats. That's exciting. Lifelong learning. Yeah, That's right, the goal, right, right. right? That's what we're all doing. That's yeah. right. We're learning every day. Yeah. So on to our topic. So as hopefully most of the listeners know, we did have an episode previously on treatment of IBD, covering a lot of the medications we use. That was with Dr. Jeff Himes. Mm -hmm. But today we want to really focus on kind of the next level. So treatment beyond the anti-TNFs that most of us have become more familiar with. You know, we always hear about all these new medications coming down the pipeline, especially for the non-IBD folks. It's hard for me to know, like, what exactly should I really be knowing about? What are things should I, that I should be, like, comfortable with using? But before getting there, so we refer to this class of medications. So one of the classes that we'll talk about today is biologics. What does that term refer to? Like, why do we call it that? Right. So biologics are compounds or complex proteins most of the time that are developed in living systems. Mm -hmm. um, and even now in pediatric IBD, we only have two that are approved for mm -hmm. the age groups that we focus on for the most part, and that's adalimumab and infliximab. And so for the pediatric gastroenterologists, I think we still misspeak. And if we say biologic, we're thinking anti-TNF and not the whole right. class, right? So there are anti-TNFs, which are just one of the many biologics that are now available for the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. Rheumatologists are a little ahead of us. They, they mm -hmm. got approvals in some that we have yet to get, but we're, we're going there. And hopefully eventually the paradigm of it being eight to 10 years from the time there's an adult approval that we get pediatric approval, hopefully that timeline is going to shorten in the near future and we'll have better access for our children for these uh, medications. Yeah. And so another kind of follow-up on that is a lot of our listeners, a lot of patients are familiar with the concept of a generic medication, but when it comes to a biologic, it's not a generic. There's this term called a biosimilar. Um, can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so by definition, the, the biosimilars have no meaningful difference structurally or functionally to the originator. So rather than calling it brand, it's originator. And rather than calling it generic, it's biosimilar. And it's important to keep in mind, even infliximab that comes, that has the name of the originator today is significantly different than what that molecule was in 1998 when it was originally oh, licensed. Wow. Protein folding, glycosylation, different changes. It's a large protein to make it exactly the same every time hmm. is not going to happen. So there've mm -hmm. been changes all along the way. And as the patent ran out, other companies realized they could do the same thing and create structurally and functionally similar compounds that have to be proven to work that way, and they do. So you have multiple of infliximab, I think 13, I think there can be 13 wow. of adalimumab, something like that uh, in the very oh near gosh. future. Wow. So we should all get used to that fact. And it's a good point, actually. So when I talk to my patients, I talk about starting infliximab or starting mm -hmm. adalimumab, because if you use the originator name, and that gets dinged by the insurance. You have to go to something else. 
right away people say, hey, I'm not getting what this exactly. doctor said I was supposed to get. They are. Right. They're similar. They work the same. Don't worry. It's okay. Right, right, right. That's a lot. I guess I had, I, I think I Remember. heard that maybe a year ago. I didn't realize there were so many biosimilars coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, think at how much money the first one made its company. Right. Everyone, that's a game everybody mm. wants to play. Sure. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think for us, it's like from a practical standpoint, so much of it's dictated by payers Insurance. and also yeah. what our facility has. So mm-hmm. we're only really familiar with like three. So there's tons of them out there that we may one day be using more and more. Yeah. More and more. Yeah. Hmm. Just curious. So currently for adalimumab, we, at least here, have only still been using right. adalimumab, the but there are, there are biosimilars coming for that Correct. soon. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There was that, I think it was an IBD, a paper about a year ago where they just listed out all of the all ones of that were coming and it was, it was, it's a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to find that, take a picture, keep it on my phone. Okay. Yeah, there is. <laughs> Who can remember all the names? Ah. Right. And then like in five years, it'll be like, wow, back, back then when there were only like 13, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Those days are great. Yeah, there are 50. So, okay. Thinking through like the way that we use some of these medications in clinical practice. So as promised, we're not going to focus on the anti-TNFs, but you know, and when we're thinking about like a new start, like a patient who comes in with, you know, perhaps more moderate, severe symptoms, are there situations where for a new start you would skip or not use infliximab or adalimumab? So in the real world or in, in Rosh's real world? So in the real world, your anti-TNS or what are approved. And yeah. so for a lot of times for a child less than 18, an insurance company is not going to want to hear about another medication. Yeah, sure. The one exception to that rule, quite frankly, has been vetalizumab mm, for mm-hmm. I would call the mild side of moderate. You know, the majority of pediatric IBD patients present with moderate to severe clinical activity. We've learned that through the risk study which the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation funded a multi-center study of newly diagnosed children with Crohn's disease. We learned that through the PROTECT study, NIH funded in similar concept, but in ulcerative colitis. Subracucathacin was the PI on, on risk. Ted Danson, Jeff Himes pioneered the PROTECT study and, and, and taught us so much about both of those diseases. Mm. So for the child who has moderate to severe outpatient ulcerative colitis, mm-hmm. a rapid response to an induction dose of prednisone, I'm fine with trying misalamine to maintain that remission. And we know both from an older collaborative group, the Pediatric IBD Collaborative Research Group showed that 40% of those kids will be maintained corticosteroid-free remission on misalamine. Mm-hmm. What about the 60%? Right. That doesn't work. If, as I tape it, the steroids, they're not that sick, I would prefer to put them on vetalizumab. Okay. Why not? Yeah. It's gut-specific. Mm-hmm. It, it, it actually targets the colon well. It's mm-hmm. a fantastic ulcerative colitis drug. It's non-systemic. So that has been my go-to. And we've had good success in getting insurance mm-hmm. companies to approve that therapy in that setting. If it is sick, inpatient, acute, severe, obviously I need to make you better faster. That's going to be infliximab. Sure. So, you know, I want to compound about that because the biggest frustration that I've had with fetalizumab in the instances I've used it is it takes so long seemingly to work. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Do you really have to wait 12 weeks to say if they're responding? Yeah, great question. So in your question, you said it seems that way. And I, and I think you said it exactly correct. So we, we had that impression from the registration trial, but then you have a second trial. It's our first head-to-head trial of a mm. biologic versus biologic. So the trial was called Varsity and it was adalimumab versus vetalizumab. First of all, vetalizumab did better than adalimumab. Mm. And, and actually I used oh, wow. that trial 
to go back to payers and say, okay, yeah. let me get this straight. You want me to use the inferior drug <laughs> that's systemically acting. Um, and by the way, it was only recently approved for pediatric ulcerative class. It took a long time to get that approval. Hmm. Here I have a gut specific, right. um, you know, drug and, and I pull out varsity as proof that it's actually the superior th uh, therapy. So if you're looking for how to talk to payers, that that's a great study to know. Hmm. And, and that did show reasonable early response, but also in your question. So very, what you said very accurately is the difference between response and remission. So, you know, do I have to wait 12 weeks if, if it's at doing absolutely nothing or I'm having to go back up on prednisone to, to get the child well, then maybe I need to move on. But usually you'll see a signal by the second dose. You know, mm -hmm. they may not be perfect yet, but they're getting better. And it's a shared decision-making opportunity. Like, are you willing to hang in there a little bit longer, right? I'm not transfusing you. You're not in the hospital. You're not sick. Can you live with these symptoms a little bit longer? And usually the answer is yes, and, and it works well. Yeah. So do you think like, so let's say you have a patient with a new diagnosis, like moderate severity of UC, you start steroids, they're doing well. You know, I think at least for my practice, like I would still think about mesalamine first. Would you say like, well, vitalizumab, you know, gut specific, probably higher efficacy. Would you go to that instead of mesalamine or it's really more, more severe patients? Oh, especially if they're 18, because it is yeah, approved yeah. for right. children and over 18. it becomes 18. easier. I honestly have a conversation. Yeah, you know, right. So pills you could take every day. Yep. And this is an IV infusion. You'll see within the year, I would think that actually vitalism may be available in this country as a subcutaneous injectable. So oh, wow. um, it's IV for now that will be injectable. So oral root versus parenteral. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure we all have patients who are just like so incredibly needle phobic. Right. Mm -hmm. Talk to them about it. It's a non-starter. Right. So misalamine has more appeal. It's a great opportunity to let the patient decide. Yeah. Um, but in the scenario you gave, I would very often try misalamine first. It's sure. certainly cheaper. And we do have to think about cost to our system. I don't know how we're going to keep paying for everything. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's above my pay grade. But I, but I am mindful of it. So I would give it a try, but if I find that as I taper the prednisone, symptoms start breaking through, so clearly misalamine is not controlling it with mm -hmm. the prednisone, then I will uh, move on. Okay. Um, all the misalamine preparations I give twice a day. I know some are labeled as four times a day. You could divide the dose, give it twice a day. Can you really expect yourself to take pills twice a day, every day? Right. Uh, hey, doc, I know myself. That ain't happening. Okay, <laughs> let's go on a veto, you know. But if they can do it and it's going to work and they can become steroid-free, misalamine's great. And if not, I'll move on to veto. And if they're sick, then I need anti-TNF. Yeah, mm -hmm. Okay. So then with VETO, because it is gut specific, what kind of monitoring do we need? Do we need the annual PPD or any other yeah, kind of monitoring? So actually, I believe it's even in the package insert, you don't. But insurance companies don't repackage inserts, except when it allows them to deny your request. <laughs> in my humble <laughs> right, experience. Right, right. Going to throw insurance companies under the bus a lot. I hope this doesn't yeah, go no, down uh... five major payers in my region. But um, <laughs> yeah, so very often we find we can't get it approved unless there's a PPD. So, you know, when we hmm. when we scope and we diagnose IBD in our endoscopy suite, there are, are, there are basically a set orders and mm -hmm. everyone gets their viral titers, quant gold, you know, we get baseline labs on everybody. So you become biologic ready. 
Mm. the day we scope you. Yeah. I know. I had to ask that specifically because I knew you didn't have to do the right. PPD, but we still have to. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, everything makes sense. Yeah. Right? <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite quotes are Mark Twain, right? The thing about common sense, it's not common, right? So, there you go. so you know, the other biologic we hear more and more about is Ustekinumab or Stellara. So IL-12. Wait, how do you pronounce it? Usta, is it not Ustekinumab? Ustekinumab. He did good. Okay. Oh, okay. I've been practicing. Good. Okay. It yeah. took like uh, 30 minutes or so, but Ustekinumab. Beautiful. So IL-12, IL-23 inhibitor is my right. understanding. Yeah. And so it's approved for adults, but not yet for kids. But I saw that you were the first author recently of a paper about uh, experience with Ustekinumab in pediatrics. Can you tell us more about that? Like where would you position that? What kind of results were, were you seeing for that medication? Yeah. So blocking interleukin 23. So we mm-hmm. sort of got lucky. So IL-12, interleukin 12 and 23 share a, a P40 subunit. And so the, it's an antibody against that. So you're blocking both 12 and 23, mm-hmm. but it turns out 23 is very important in our diseases and drives the inflammation. So by, by giving Usikinumab, you can see excellent results. The safety, so it's been around for not great with dates, but probably at least 20 years in psoriasis and there's long-term safety data Uh in that patient population. It's probably even safer than Mm anti-TNF, although we've really learned over time anti-TNF. We were worried. I remember like my first infliximab infusions, we kept them around for six hours. I don't know if we thought they were going to vaporize or what we thought was going to (laughs) happen, but we just didn't know, you know, it's called biologic. It sounded like space age, you know, what was going to happen. And and thank God that, you know, we, we do see some seraciform rashes later on. Yes, there is infection risk. You know, I, I think the whole patasplenic T-cell lymphoma yeah, story yeah. we learned was more attached to the thiopurines mm, that we gave mm-hmm. as combination therapy. So we've come to recognize it's safe. The quote-unquote newer biologics like IL-1223 inhibitors really seem to be even safer. Uh-huh. So, you know, I think perianal fistulizing disease, anti-TNF, mm. acute sick in the hospital, infliximab anti-TNF. So there's certainly certain times when I think it's superior. For other patients, if, if I was an adult gastroenterologist, I'd probably use ustekinumab first. Yeah, first. okay. The first, it's an IV load, and then it's self-injectable. Oh. So anything that ends in MAB means oh, you're right, you're right, antibody, you're right. right? Mm-hmm. And, and these are large proteins, so they're mm-hmm. going to be parenteral, whether it be sub-Q or IV. Mm. This one's IV load and then self-injectable. Little tip, I will say, I don't, it's, it's labeled every eight weeks injection. I don't think I have too many patients on every eight weeks. It seems like every six weeks, every four mm-hmm. weeks works better. There was just a study stepped up in JPGN from the portal group that showed good response to consolidating the doses to six or four weeks. So very often you'll find that's what you need for maintenance, but it's a good drug, works well. Okay. Is there kind of a treat to target, like with the anti-TNS, yeah. like a therapeutic dosing and drug ah, monitoring? So it's really interesting. So when, when it comes to therapeutic drug monitoring, TDM, our best data, no doubt, are with the anti-TNFs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this always becomes a debate at the IBD meetings, right? Is it about the level or the antibodies? Or mm-hmm. is it an epiphenomenon? If, if I really control your disease, I lower your TNF burden. And I lower your TNF burden, your level is going to go up. So my does the higher level prove that I'm controlling inflammation? Or by driving to a higher level, do I control the inflammation? What's the chicken? What's the egg? Right. Who cares? <laughs> it works. Right. But what happens is if I, the anti-TNFs are very immunogenic. So if I don't keep a good level, your body seems to forget about them and you start making anti-drug antibodies. Mm. The the newer agents like ustekinumab, for instance, much less immunogenic. And so mm. anti-drug antibodies are much less of a problem. And 
it seems more and more levels are interesting where they're really key. If you are going to follow levels, good data for, for sure you want to be above 1.3. Being above 4.5 is really a sweet spot. Or you could go agnostic and just if, if you see a response, but it's not ideal, shorten the interval. Mm-hmm. If you don't see a response at all, probably time to move on. Hmm. Yeah. And then just going back to vitalizumab, so gut specific, that one also less immunogenic? Much less okay. immunogenic. Yeah. Good data that maintenance should be somewhere between 15 and 20. Mm-hmm. Do I follow levels? I do. But it's interesting. It kind of feels the same way. If you're if the child is responding, but you're not really getting to your target, mm-hmm. we scoped there's still some inflammation. Calpro stay elevated, shrink to every four-week dosing. Wow. If, if they're doing nothing, no response at all at every eight weeks, probably shortening the interval is not going to help so much. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then just to follow up on those two, just so I get it straight in my mind. So vitalizumab, you had mentioned is like, you know, you would consider that first line for some of your UC patients. Um, how about for Crohn's? Not, not as not so much. Yeah. Um, it, it's approved on uh-huh. the adult mm-hmm. side in both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Feels like a better colon drug than small bowel mm-hmm. drug. And there actually was just recently a small study that showed it does help in fistulizing disease. It had mm-hmm. been Interesting. that study. I would tell you it doesn't do a lot for fistulizing disease. I still feel it's not a great fistulizing yeah. drug. Anti-TNF is still better and even still are better than, than Veto for that. Okay. And and as far as levels, you know, you can kind of remember it is is 15, 10, 5. So mm-hmm. Veto, you want to keep above 15, anti-TNF above 10. Solara four and a half, five. But again, mm-hmm. the data is best with the anti-TNS, strongest yeah. with the anti-TNS. 15, 10, five. I yeah, love it. Keep it simple. <laughs> keep it simple. Yeah. Keep it simple. And then the, uh, and then just kind of completing that thought. So the Stellara, so you mentioned, you know, I mean, is that kind of equally effective for UC and Crohn's, oh, we think, or? So it, it's approved in both uh-huh. on the adult side. It's certainly a drug you can go to, but for the milder outpatients, I prefer Veto. For the sick inpatients, I prefer Infliximab. Yeah. What about the patient for which neither of those work? Yeah. You certainly can move to Stellara, but now you're going to go to the orals, to the small molecules. Mm-hmm. Uh, the JAK inhibitors, much more impressive than performance, I would say, than even Ustekinumab. So let's go there then. Let's <laughs> go there. Nice segue, yes. Yeah, okay, I have a very big ask for you. We don't have time to go into detail for all of the different categories of medications, but can you walk us through just the categories of the biologic and the non-biologic or small molecules that are approved? So I think we covered the biologics yeah. except for one. So you have the, if we think about classes, you have the anti-TNF, you have the anti-integrin or mm-hmm. integrin, depending on which <laughs> the you accent. I think I'm an uh, integrin. You're right? integrin? Are you an integrin? Integrin. Integrin, right? Yeah. Okay, let's go integrin today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tomorrow yeah. will be yeah. integrin. That's right. <laughs> so, so you have the anti-TNFs, you have the anti-integrin, so that, that's vetalizumab. You have what I guess we're going to call anti-cytokine, even though mm. TNFs are cytokine, but a, or anti-interleukin, maybe let's call mm-hmm. it that. So you have the IL-1223 inhibitor, ustekinumab, and now you have rizinkizumab, which is an anti-IL-23 specific. Ah, okay. Um, recently approved in Crohn's, the safest of the biologics that mm. we have. Mm-hmm. If, if you look at risk profile, although again, they're all really proven to be pretty darn safe. And all my dermatology co- colleagues, because they've had anti-IL-23 for psoriasis for a while now, said all the patients that didn't respond to 1223, 23 is the bomb. It, it Interesting. Works even better. Yeah, it's like yeah. The, wait, who was who wore his basketball 23? 
Michael Jordan. Uh, Michael Jordan. It's like the Michael Jordan. You pull him in of the biologics. Whoever was twelve, it wasn't him. It's actually Jordan. Oh yeah, of course. Of course. Not to get too confused there by all the numbers. Yeah. So it was recently approved in Crohn's disease and really should be coming along in UC soon. Three IV loading doses and Mm. then it becomes self-injectable and has incredible amount of promise. So that kind of rounds out the biologics. And again, because of the size of the molecule, the all parental administration, IV or, or, or sub-Q, now you have small molecules. Tofacitinib, brand name Zeljans, was, was the first that we got to play with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it works. It works relatively quickly. If you don't see improvement, like in the first week, you're probably not going to get better, but okay. you'll, you'll see real response in, in a matter of a couple of weeks. And it's a great rescue drug for even for inpatients. Mm-hmm. Okay. Recently approved. So that's a JAK inhibitor. So the Janus kinase, there, there are four, JAK 1, 2, 3. And just to confuse us, the immunologist called <laughs> JAK 4, TIC 2. Oh, so kinase two. Yeah, Savage. right, right. So the TIC 2 inhibitors are coming and they're going to be very promising as well. Wow. Um, right now, Tofacinib, which is JAK1 and 3 inhibition. But then you have Rinvoke, which was just recently, Patacinib recently approved, which is a JAK1 specific. And we've gotten to use it a little bit. And I can tell you, it it seems to even be superior to Tofacinib in terms Hmm. of rapidity of response. And I've even put some Tofacinib partial responders Hmm. onto it. And they've seemed to respond even better. So wow. it just keeps getting better for the patients. Yeah, so I'm going to pull amazing. on some memory strings here. Okay. Is tofacitinib <laughs> the one we have to worry about the lipids? The lipid profile. So baseline, it does seem to raise both good and bad cholesterol and total cholesterol. So you get a, a fasting lipid profile baseline. And then don't hold me. I think it's every two to three months is what's recommended We've seen mild bumps in kids. No one's gotten into bad numbers. There was a case of intestinal perforation in the clinical trial, so that's still listed as one of the things to talk about, mm-hmm. although I don't think that's really panned out as being a major side effect. And the, the main thing are MACE or cardinary venothrombolic embolism and heart attack stroke seen in patients over 50 with one risk factor in rheumatology and oh. arthritis. So that earned it a black box warning. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people who are over 50 with arthritis aren't very mobile. Mm-hmm. Sure, they have more right. They more risk. And in the younger mobile population we serve that really hasn't been seen post-marketing, but it's still a black box warning. It's still something you want to warn people about. And from the medical legal side, keep in mind that we are dealing with pro-inflammatory states that are pro-thrombotic. Right, mm-hmm. right. So if I didn't warn them and they have a bad outcome, you know this, they're going to find a lawyer to blame the drug, right? Mm-hmm. It would be very hard to prove otherwise. So we, we should warn our patients about it. We should keep them mobile. Certainly if they're in the hospital, we should try and get them out of bed and wear stockings and, and do what you do for VTE Profi. But those are the main things we talk about. Rare risk of in, intestinal perforation. Watch the lipids and, and VTE complications. And then the new one, does it ha- carry that same black box warning? So I think it's... At least at the level of the FDA felt to be a class effect. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that the clinical trial data bears that out. But yeah, I would think of it as a jack class effect for gotcha. now. Gotcha. Okay. So that's a jack. What are the sphingosine 1-phosphate? S1Ps. Yes. Yeah. So think about the anti-integrin or anti um 
cell trafficking ways of interfering with the inflammatory cascade. So the integrins block the ability of the inflammatory cells, activated T cells, to move from the circulation into the gut. That's how vetalizumab blocks integrin alpha-4, beta-7, which is gut-specific, and keeps the cells from migrating into the tissue. What if I keep the cells from migrating out of the lymph node in the first place? Hmm. Um, And so I'm just going more and more proximal in cell trafficking. That's what the S1Ps do. Hmm. Um, So Ozanamod was the first one. Zaposi is the first one that's been licensed for it. A little bit cumbersome to use. The first dose should be done in your office, um, watching for bradycardic events because it can interfere with uh, cardiac conduction, hmm. contraindicated in certain cardiac conditions, and even with AV block, et cetera, because of that, may have some effects on the retina. And so um, the tomography of the retina is recommended. Don't give it in certain patient populations with maculodema, diabetic retinopathy. So older people kind of stuff, but I th- I, it's not a drug that I have um, found a use for yet in pediatrics so mm-hmm. much um, between all the biologics we talked about and now um, the jacks it's going to have a niche. I just haven't quite figured it out yet. Hmm. Newly, newly approved. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, so we talked about the IL-23 specific biologic. IL-23, that's right. The Jordan, yeah. Jordan. Of, the, uh, the Jordan of the biologics. <laughs> Good way. Good so. remember It gets confusing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so I guess like, you know, what I'm hearing is like, so certainly uh, vetalizumab and isokinumab, those are things that their use in pediatrics is probably going to only become more common. I believe so. And then of the small molecules, probably tofacitinib is the one that there's yeah, already some evidence and, and yeah, maybe and more coming. Yeah, is, is coming. Yeah. It's also a very, very promising drug. Hmm. Okay. So we have a little bit of a rapid fire clinical scenario type okay. uh, situation Ooh. we're going to embark First on. First time on bow sounds. Yeah, I don't want to build up too much. Don't worry, you don't, uh, it won't be that rapid. But, uh, you know, so the whole purpose of this is like, well, we've already tried infliximab or adalimumab. You know, what do we do next? It's not working. Yeah. Now And what? so we kind of talked about this a little bit, but just a few kind of clinical scenarios. So the first, you know, acute severe colitis in the hospital, you know, steroids, uh, infliximab, still struggling. You know, I think maybe five, 10 years ago, we would say, you know, call the surgeon. It's time to think about surgery, but I think I may know your answer. Well, so what, what would you do next after that? So keep in mind, my good friend, Miguel Ruggiero, an adult IBD specialist at Cleveland Clinic has actually pioneered and developed a new drug we did not talk about yet, Mm. which is colorectomab. Uh, okay. So. Ooh, that's a very like good <laughs> name. Colorectal map. It's a Miguelism. Yep. I got to give him credit. So, <laughs> so, so we should not forget these are medically and surgically treated. Right, diseases, right, right, right. So I have a child in the hospital, you know, they're going to get IV steroids for three days. And if no response, they're going to move on to infliximab. And if no response, they're going to move on to a jack inhibitor. And mm. if no response, maybe we should call the surgeon. So that's the scenario we yeah. all have in our head, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a at least every day, but probably more likely Q8 or Q12 reassessment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're in the hospital. Your albumin is 1.9. Albumin yeah. is a very critical lab in the acute severe clinic. So your albumin is in the toilet, literally, and <laughs> you're draining my blood bank. Am I really going to wait three days to give that dose of infliximab? Absolutely not. I'm right. going to give it at 
when I admit you, mm-hmm. you're also going to meet my friend, the surgeon. So yep. we introduce from day zero mm-hmm. that we are going to be watching you together. We're going to be seeing how you do. And I may need to call my friend, the surgeon, to take that really sick colon out because yeah. I'm here to save you, not your colon. And you really want to get a surgeon who's not like, hi, I hope you never need me. My name is so-and-so. And they're out the door before. <laughs> right. They're going to sit down and talk to the patient. They're going to build a rapport because if they need to operate, they're not going to be a stranger. And thank God where I am and I believe where I'm going, we have that kind of relationship. So so that's all that happens day one. Mm-hmm. And it's a day-to-day reassessment. If I do need to go onto infliximab and I get some response yeah. that then seems to be short-lived, I'll give a second dose. Mm-hmm. If I get no response, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to move on. And so at least, again, patient is relatively stable. Albumin is hanging in there around two-ish, but I'm not really seeing infliximab response. That, that's where we've given the jack. Yeah. Um, and, you know, up until a couple months ago, that was TOFA sitting there, mm-hmm. but right now I would prefer UPA in that setting. And then if I don't see rap response to that, then, then it really is time for the surgeon. Yeah. But at any point, the clinical situation goes south, the surgeon is ready. Yeah. Can oh, we talk about the dosing for a second? Because mm-hmm. I've been in this scenario recently, and we were debating between twice a day dosing, three times mm-hmm. a day dosing, I know there's been a couple of case reports of the three-time-a-day tofacitinib right. really yeah. doing a good job. What are your thoughts on that? So I haven't gone to it, just because, but have been ready to. So Peter Higgins in Michigan really pioneered that work. And mm-hmm. so 10 twice a day of tofacitinib we're talking. Peter came up with the idea, well, why not 10 TID in the beginning? So mm-hmm. for a short course, and then when the patient's doing better, back down to twice a day. And that really does seem to save some patients. As, as I said, in that scenario now, we've really been going more to upacitinib at 45 milligrams once a day. And the recommendation there is eight weeks at 45 and then try to back down to 30. Mm-hmm. Sort of the same as TOFA. The recommendation has been 10 twice a day. I think officially it's eight or 12 weeks. I don't even remember um, because all my patients end up needing that and they don't, I haven't been able to step them down. But mm, sure. because of the black box morning, we're supposed to try to go down to five BID. And it's going to be selection bias. The patients I put on these medications are sick enough. They seem to need the higher dose. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so a little bit of a, I know it wasn't in the questions, but a little uh, kind of follow up (laughs) on that. Okay. So I think a few years ago in that scenario, uh, you know, we would talk a lot about antibiotic salvage therapy. Do you feel Mm. like with uh, jack inhibitors like that, there's not really much, much of a role for that anymore? Yeah, I it's a uniquely pediatric thing to uh-huh. do. Dan Turner in Israel was the first to really show it. I know my dear friends at Children's Philly are big proponents of it. I've had two patients exactly mm-hmm. two seem mm-hmm. to have turned around with the antibiotic cocktail. My impression is it seems to work better even in the younger kids. Okay. Um, and so it's it's worth a it's in that box of it's worth a try. Sure. Um it's a lot of pills, it's a lot of antibiotics, it's not always yeah. easy for families, but it it could be worth a try. Yeah, mm. so maybe like while surgery is being scheduled or something like that. Yeah. So Okay. Okay, I want to try that. a different scenario. So say you have a kid who has Crohn's and they've had it for years and they're pretty uncomplicated. So no perianal disease, they've been on an anti-TNF and now all of a sudden their antibodies are going up, they're not working, they're coming out of remission. What do you do next in that scenario? So great. So with the scenario you laid out, you have the option of moving within class. So if the mm-hmm. TNF that they have, have been receiving, they are now becoming immunized against, so you could switch within class and, and continue that mechanism of action and, and use a different anti-TNF. 
The well, let me ask, not the biosimilar, though. It Correct. would be a different class. Okay, Thank just making sure. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because infliximab biosimilar is similar, so they're going to be just as immune to that as the originators. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent Note point. Note to self, don't try <laughs> all 12 at a liver bath. Exactly. Yeah, but, you know, to, if I was going to do that, I used to do a talk, the 10 common pitfalls of uh, IBD management. That's definitely- Add that, that on there. That's in the 10. <laughs> Let me just move to a biosimilar of the thing that's not working. That's You're going to get the same response. Um, so, you know, if you're on infliximab, go to Adalimab, Adalimab, go to Infliximab. The one that gets forgotten about is Golimimab because that was developed and licensed and you see so no one thinks about it in hmm. Crohn's, but it's an anti-TNF. It works too. If you can get insurance to approve it for a different condition, take the other scenario, it, it, they're, they're losing response. They're, this mechanism of action isn't working for me, but I have excellent drug level. Mm-hmm then you probably need to leave that class, right? Mm-hmm. So doing more of the same doesn't seem to work. Um, so in that scenario you just laid out, I think moving on to uh, to a IL-1223, or if you can get it, just an IL-23 inhibitor for mm-hmm. that patient would be an excellent choice. Hmm. Yeah. So there's another anti-TNF called golilumab. Golilumab. Wow. Brand name Symphony. Okay. Um, also a Janssen product. And they developed it, got it licensed in... Ulcerative colitis. Yeah. Around that time came along Ustigin and Med. Uh-huh. I think the focus became on that as opposed to continuing to develop yet another because there was also right. Sertalizumab, yeah. right? Uh-huh. So you already had three anti TNFs yeah. in the Crohn's space, and you know, how many do you need? So right. the field is gone. But, yeah. but it's still there. It's still yeah. orderable. So our, uh, our last clinical scenario. So you briefly mentioned this, but you know, so the patient with Crohn's disease with perianal disease. Yeah that has not responded to an anti-TNF alone. I mean, right. So surgery is still, you know, there if there's something that requires that, but from like a medication standpoint, what do you think? Is there something else other than anti-TNFs that we know tends to work for perianal disease as yeah. well? So, so just to highlight, cause the management that you just outlined is the critical point is if it's not going well, make sure that all the purulence is drained. Mm-hmm. So that's probably a patient mm-hmm. to be re-imaged. Maybe even an exam under anesthesia by a, by a highly experienced Crohn's surgeon. Make sure there's not some pus trap somewhere that's causing the problem. But you have cetons in, you have a fistula that won't close, you have non-purulent complications of the, of the disease, or on your therapy, a new fistula pops, you get it drained, you put in new cetons and say, wow, it's pretty obvious this became a problem on the therapy. You certainly, I think the best evidence for another mechanism action there is the IL-1223. Okay. Even more so the 23. But upacitinib, which we talked about in the setting of ulcerative colitis, has some very promising signals in Crohn's disease. So not yet hmm. approved yet for that, but mm-hmm. I wonder where we're going to go with that. And there might be another way mm-hmm. too. But right now it'll be a usikinib or yep. if you can get of the IL-23 uh, IL specific. Yeah. Okay. Michael Jordan. Yeah. Michael Jordan. <laughs> you always got to call in Jordan. That's it. Wow. So that has been really great. And I think this is going to be another thing you've touched on before, but sometimes getting these medications approved by insurance can be very challenging. And so would you A, be able to share with us some of the references that you mentioned so that we can link them in our show notes? Varsity. Varsity. But also B, what strategies have worked for you to get these medications that are not approved, approved? Yeah. So I have three prior approval people. So they do all our pre-serving for procedures, MRs, blah, 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 but also for all these medications. And they are they've become highly skilled. I mean, they could probably take care of some of my patients. They can tell you the indications <laughs> for these. And, right, and so, right. so they, they almost have the attitude of really 
insurance company, you're going to tell me. Exactly. <laughs> I recently had a, an interesting experience where a mom, you know, don't forget it's Jersey. So she had to tell me how she went Jersey on this, on oh, this insurance I love company. It. So what do you mean? Well, you wanted, I, I think actually it was Rinvoke. You, you wanted to put my child on it and the insurance company, I called them to find out why they denied it. I said, well, you know, we're only looking out for your child's welfare. This isn't approved pediatrics. So the mom said, let me get this straight. You want to make sure you protect my child from their doctor. She then let them tell, she then told them what she thought. Of that, which I wish I had a recording. Exactly. That. <laughs> that was, but that's how crazy it's gotten. Right. Yeah. So I hear you. So I think knowing references is really important. And let me get some of those for you. We talked about varsity, which I've really used very well for getting Veto up front over an anti-TNF. Keep, keep in mind that the JAK inhibitors right now are, are licensed for anti-TNF non-responsive patients. So you're not going to get that unless you've tried that. Mm. For therapeutic drug monitoring, um, it's I've used the AGA guidelines a lot. So it says keep adalimumab above 7.5 and keep infliximab above 5. Both of those are low. We know both sure. definitely be above 10. But anytime a level is below that, I'll say here's the level, here's the guidelines. We need to up the dose and mm -hmm. that works very well for bumping up anti-TNF dosing, you know. We've also learned, by the way, with the anti-TNF, and I don't know why we didn't realize this from the beginning, just thinking pharmacokinetically, if you want to raise a drug peak, you increase the dose. If you want to raise the trough, you shorten the interval. We all mm -hmm. learned that in pharmacology class, right? And it's really good data now that if you're doing anti-TNF, shortening the interval is a better move than raising the dose. So yeah. going five per kilo of infliximab every four weeks versus 10 every eight sounds the same. It's mm -hmm. not. Five mm -hmm. Q4 is probably better. So that's mm -hmm. what we fight for. Everyone's yeah, thinking of helpful. that curve in their head. Exactly. Yes, right? the line across the middle. Yes. And, These are just uh, drugs. Dropping. They should be treated yep, yep. like drugs. Right. So kind of one final question about biologics and small molecules. I mean, so I think we're in this, you know, we talked a little bit about the history of IBD, uh, not too long, you know, in your talk this morning. And so there's a period of time where there's only a handful of tools. And then just in the past few years, there's this explosion of different kinds of new medications. Um, what do you see in the future for IBD treatment? Is this going to continue with this like rapid, you know, proliferation of medications? Or do you feel like some are going to rise at the top and those are the ones that are really going to survive? What do you think? So it's a great question. So, so basically you want investment strategies. You want exactly. And uh, yes, later we'll talk about the specific companies. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think, I think first, e even though we could almost get, feel giddy with how many medications uh -huh. we have, let's remember it's still finite. So optimizing therapy is still the first move. Don't like all of us who do second, third opinions, you know, you see a kid who just ran through three biologics in four yeah, months. Right. Uh, what do you want me to invent for you here, right? So right. let's be very thoughtful about what we pick because all the data also shows your first drug works best. Mm -hmm, you always mm -hmm. lose a little bit when you move on. And is that because of disease progression, mechanistic escape? Who knows? But that's the data. Yeah. So pick your therapy wisely. Know how to optimize it. Make sure you're watching. Make sure that if you're making a change, it's because of real disease. Don't make a change because a CalPro bumped by 100. Yeah. Um, you want to really be rescoping, re-imaging, really knowing you're de dealing with non-response before mm -hmm. you make a change. That's always going to be true. Mm -hmm. As far as... Um, you know, predicting, I, you know, I, I, I'm very impressed by where the small molecules are going. Mm -hmm. uh, very impressed by the Jack and tyrosine kinase pathway. I think that shows a lot of promise. I think in general, the theme has been more specific, safer targeted yeah. therapy. And 
where it's really going to rise to the top is when we really understand each patient's phenotype and can personalize the therapy. So right. it's good that the toolbox is growing, but this, let me try this. And if it doesn't work, try that. Like you're in the, you know, dressing room at some <laughs> department store is not the way to take care of IBD. Yeah. Recognize that. And it's going to, different drugs going to rise to the top for different diseases. When we start calling these more than just ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, I think right. that's where we're going. Yeah, it's exciting. It is. And I love how we've become more and more specific, right? We're no longer just immune suppressing like all over the place. We're becoming gut specific mm -hmm. or IL-23 specific. And I think that's just going to be so great for the yeah. side effect profile. Totally agree. Very yeah. awesome. So Dr. Rush, thank you so much for spending this time with yeah. us during your very busy trip to Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> we saw your schedule. Looking back on your career, what has been the most valuable advice that you've received? And what advice do you have for our listeners? Okay, so best career advice is, is really best life advice. So that's going to be for my parents. So my mom always said, make hay while the sun shines. Actually, <laughs> her grandkids, my kids laugh. They think that's like such a funny hokey thing. Right? <laughs> but it, it's so true. It's like we, we try so hard sometimes to see what's the smartest thing. And a lot of times it's right in front of you. So look at the opportunities that are in front of you and don't let them pass. That, that's really important. Yeah, And then my dad always said, if you're struggling, it's probably because you're using the wrong tool. Hmm. So be creative, be innovative, realize there's always more than one way to, to solve a problem. So if you feel like you keep running into a wall, maybe think about stepping around it, or maybe there's a door there, right? So be innovative, be creative. Don't take no for an answer. You, you can improve the lives of children and adolescents and their families by hanging in there with them, listening to them. Um, and using all the tools that are in front of you. So that's, yeah. that's the advice. I Thank love you. That. Yeah. That's, that's, it's been awesome talking to you and like Thank you. having you visit and can I, can I share one more piece? Yeah. Oh, please. Oh yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing is no one can do it alone. So mm. we are so fortunate in our field. I think if you look at, I mean, look at your place and the size of your place and what Carlos built here and the, the importance of team. So and everyone, every member of the team brings their skill set to the table and it all needs to be valued. So yeah. I've been in the same place for 28 years. Most of the people there have been with me the entire time and feel very blessed. And I feel very blessed to have found a new team that's going to do very similar great things. So look around, take your team. And that team also includes the team at home. So yeah. we talk a lot about work-life balance. So I've been incredibly blessed by having a wife who has supported me every step of the way and a family that's been very supportive. So team at work, team at home, that's what gets us there. So yeah. that's I mean, the advice. That's true. Both your old team and your new team have been exactly. so fortunate to have you there as their uh, leader. So mm -hmm. that's kind. Thank you. Uh, but thank you again so much. I know that our audience will love it, especially some of those words of advice, you know? Thank you. But yes, thank you. Oh, wait, any final words? Did you not want to say that? <laughs> Any final words for our listeners? <laughs> I think we went through like several final words. I don't know. But... You might want extra yeah, final yeah, yeah, words. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Any good. final words? No, thank you. Okay. Thank you for the opportunity. This is great. <laughs> All right. But yes, thanks again. Thank you. All right. <laughs>、Awesome。
Honestly, it's like exciting to know that there's so many things that we will eventually become more and more familiar with and be using all the time mm -hmm. that are way safer and potentially just as or more effective than the stuff that we're using now. Oh, yeah. And I, it's safer because it's more targeted. It's yeah. not just a general immune suppressant, right? And it's great. And we really need our pediatric research to kind of catch up to where some of the adult yeah. colleagues are with these meds. Man, it's like motility world. We get like one drug every 20 years and then like four get taken off the market. You know, <laughs> it's like, what the heck? All right. Anyways, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Battle Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. Tell a person about the podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcast, and on the Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to Naspigan Foundation. You can get there by org. And the money you donate helps support some amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including pediatric GI research and education programs. And don't forget to claim your CME. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks Thank you all listening. for listening. Bye. Bye.